Day and welcome to the Pandemi Show. Stories of the Pandemi for people living in the Pandemi. No one is alone on the Pandemi Show. Thanks for joining us as we unite humanity through stories of hope, connection, and community in the face of the global pandemic. We are all in this together, and we're glad you're here together with us. Thanks for taking a moment to like, subscribe, and follow the Pandemi Show on social media. Who are you? My name's Yakov Island, and I'm a high school math teacher, and I teach statistics courses amongst others. Yakov, thank you so much for joining us here today on the Pandemic Show. Stories of the Pandemic for the people of the Pandemic. No one's alone on the Pandemic Show. Can you tell us what was your life like pre? pandemic yeah pretty straightforward i'm a teacher in kitchener ontario which is near toronto in canada and been teaching for over a decade i like to play ultimate frisbee competitively on the side and do some coaching there pretty active with that type of stuff but pretty straightforward typical middle class life i'd say before the pandemic started the pandemic started being on our calendar being on our radar in 2019 you were hearing about it overseas more chatter about it as we went into the winter of 2019-2020. Well, how did your life change and what happened to you and your family when the pandemic struck? Yeah, I'd say for me, the first signal that this was going to be something big is looking out at, at the numbers out of Wuhan, China, and just seeing how quickly it was growing. I was doing a math test with some of my grade 12 students and I needed an example for exponential growth. I checked out the numbers there and matched them up and I was like, "Oh man, like that is perfect exponential growth practically and it's really fast." The doubling rate was like 6 or 8 days or something like that. That was clearly bad news. It meant it was going to get big very quickly and if it was doing in Wuhan, then when it got to other places it was going to do the same thing that was maybe a week and a half before we got to the shutdown point here in ontario but it was kind of like oh this isn't just some thing like ebola where it's going to be localized and you know they it's a problem it's a serious issue but the rest of us are going to be relatively safe it's like no no this is going to be a problem and so then with the shutdown my wife and i were planning to travel to trinidad to see extensively obviously had to cancel that and as a teacher school was closed originally for 2 weeks and then that just got extended right through to the end of the school year from mid march or so making all of that shift to online how do you support students who are going through a pretty difficult time how do you try to get a little bit of learning it was a big change you know a lot of my teaching is really trying to have some conversations with students and help them understand and think about and it's really hard to do that online so it, it meant a pretty big shift and then the other piece of it is that my dad is living in long term care shortly after the pandemic started they had a case in his long term care home at that time there wasn't really clear guidance from the province on how to deal with it the procedures they had in place were not sufficient so that person got sick and the time that their covid test came back positive they'd interacted with 50 staff and so within days and the home practically had it out of 240 residents i think 170 
ended up testing positive at some point over the next couple months. They had 70 of their staff test positive, 50 residents passed away. It was a, a pretty bad situation and uh, they tested everyone in the home. We got my dad's test back and he was positive, which was pretty scary, but the kind of saving grace in terms of my mental health was that it took seven days for the test to come back. So by the time we found out he was positive, he still had had no symptoms for seven days. So it was like, okay, seven more days, and then we're probably okay. He might make it through without any problems. And that's in fact, what happened. We were very, very lucky, but yeah, pretty stressful to, to get a phone call saying, you know, this deadly disease is in your dad's place of residence and he can't be moved out because of his condition. And then later on to get another one saying he's tested positive and now you're just waiting to find out what's going to happen. Wow. Interesting perspective from a statistician. You looked at the data in Wuhan with your students just weeks before the lockdowns and the shutdowns here in Canada. And from that exponential growth, you were able to extrapolate that we were going to have a problem here. And then it quickly affected your family directly with your father's experience. How's your father doing now? He's doing really well. Yeah. Like I said, he had no symptoms at all. It was totally fine. So we were very, very lucky with that. He got moved out of the home at one point just because staffing was so low. And because he has dementia, that was a really upsetting experience for him. He got moved to one of the local hospitals. But through it all, the staff have been really great. And that's been a, a really wonderful thing to know that they have he has really good people around him that i trust and that take good care of him so yeah for three months i wasn't able to see him in person and i usually go visit him every day so that was really tough as well starting in about february i guess of this year i was able to start visiting again so it's been much better thank you for sharing that i know our family we lost one of our great aunts she was in a long-term care facility in kitchener and she didn't make it through after she caught covid but it really was an eye-opener, this COVID, on some other shortcomings we have in our society around long-term care. I heard a statistic today that they've analyzed how many Canadian healthcare workers contracted COVID, and it's around 100,000. Doctors, nurses, but most of them are PSWs, personal support workers who are working with, with our seniors and working with people that need more hands-on support. So it definitely was an eye-opener. You know, being there... Like when you're working with someone with dementia, you can do all sorts of things to protect yourself. But if you have to help them go to the bathroom and help feed them, you know, you can't keep distance. You can't, you know, if you're picking someone up or helping to pick someone up and they knock your face shield off, like you can't just drop them and put the face shield back, right? It's harder to follow all the public health protocols. And also too, when you're working with people with those types of conditions, you have to be patient and things don't happen as quickly as you might like them to, to happen. Yeah, absolutely. And with the for-profit homes, I've seen kind of some of the good and some of the bad about the for-profit homes. So the good is that they're very policy and procedure driven. They've got all the procedures, they check and they make sure that people are following them, you know, and they're quite careful about that. And when you're in a, a pandemic situation or a situation where there's a new danger, that can be really helpful because it sets it out and, and it kind of really enforces it. But the flip side is that they try to run so close to the minimum cost possible. A few days before the shutdown, I was in contact with one of the managers at the home and I'd found a document from the US that gave information on general 
respiratory pandemics. It wasn't specifically written for COVID, but for this type of situation, saying here's what long-term care homes should do in that situation. Talk to this manager about a few of the recommendations, including that the residents not eat in the dining room altogether, that they instead be served meals in their rooms. And she said, we'd like to do that, but we just don't have the staff to watch people and choking is also a hazard for our residents. And so we can't safely have them eat in their homes because we don't have enough staff. And it was like, oh yeah, like you're running so close to the line in order to maximize profits that when there's a problem, you just don't have the resilience built into the system, right? Like a person I think is really interesting in his thoughts on modern society is a guy named John Michael Greer. And one of the things he said that's really stuck with me is that efficiency and robustness are opposites. If you have something that's very efficient, it's not very robust. Really saw that with the pandemic in the the long-term care homes. Can you tell us if the Delta variant or some of these new variants would have been the first this would have been an extremely different pandemic. The first COVID-19 virus, it seemed to target older people more dramatically than younger people. But now we've got the flip where this is almost like a Spanish flu 1918, where it's taking the young again. I know I was talking to my father the other day and he's starting to see headlines from the unvaccinated places in the States that they're seeing more fatalities than the younger, healthier people. Yeah. And it looks like it's just spreading much, much faster. And I'm really not a medical expert, but my understanding of what's happening right now is that we're not sure yet whether it's more serious. It doesn't appear yet that it is, but it just spreads so quickly. And you're right. If this had been the first version, we would have been in much greater trouble. You know, there's a bit over 4 million deaths worldwide, and that number would be much, much higher if if Delta had been the original one. I think the other thing that is still sinking in for a lot of people, like there was this feeling when vaccines became widely available, like, oh, okay, we've got the solution. You know, we just need to get everyone vaccinated and then we're done with this and things are back to normal. And Delta variant is changing that because it infects vaccinated people I've seen, you know, the study out of Britain from the REACT study is saying about 50% chance for a vaccinated person uh, as compared to an unvaccinated person. Some other stuff I've seen is saying it's only 33%, but either way, both of those numbers are pretty big. Like it says, even if you're vaccinated, you shouldn't feel like you're not going to catch Delta variant. Chances are pretty good if you're exposed a significant amount of times that you're going to get it. And yesterday there was a professor of immunology from here in Ontario on their local radio station. And she said she was asked about how transmissible it is among vaccinated people. And she said, we all need to understand that we're going to get Delta at some point. It wasn't like, you know, this is what you should do to protect yourself. She just said, get vaccinated. Because if you are vaccinated, your chances of a bad medical experience with it are much lower. Like chances you'll be hospitalized, chances you'll die way, way, way lower. So super helpful to be vaccinated, but you need to understand you can still transmit it almost as readily as somebody who's unvaccinated. So the physical distancing aspects are still important. I know that first shot of the vaccine lifted some of the burden of the whole pandemic off my shoulders. The second vaccine, we walked out of there smiling, feeling great, knowing we would still have to do the physical distancing. And and I'll tell you right now, I would wear a mask to protect unvaccinated people. We're in some weird dynamics. And you made a really good point on your social media 
that some people might be being too hard on the unvaccinated crowd. Can you speak to that? Yeah, I guess there's there's a few things. And, and I want to start this by saying I have looked into things as carefully as my background as a non-expert in medical areas allows me to. And from everything that I've seen, getting vaccinated is an excellent idea. I myself am fully vaccinated. I strongly believe that that is the best choice for anyone unless medically they're unable to. But I I felt like this through a lot of different parts of the pandemic that people don't think of risk as a continuum. Like there's certain things that are less risky and certain things that are more risky. Uh, You know, people maybe know about how we used to talk about safe sex and then the language kind of changed to safer sex. I'm saying the idea, you know, like using a condom makes you much safer, but it's not perfectly safe. And so a lot of people weren't really thinking like that. They were thinking like, what's the thing I can do that's going to make me perfectly safe? And vaccination seemed to be that, but it's not. And so we need to understand that there's many things you can do to make yourself safer. Vaccination is one of the best, if not the best, and certainly like the best that's easily available. But there's many things that you can do to make yourself safer. And so If somebody's unvaccinated, but they're isolating, and then you have contact with them, your risk is almost nothing from that person. If somebody is vaccinated, but they're doing what I'm going to start doing, which is walking into a classroom full of high school students and spending all day with two different groups, and then the next week with another group, you know, like I'm having a lot of contact. And despite my vaccination, especially with Delta variant, I can transmit it easily. Spending a day in a room with me after I've been around those high school students for several weeks is less safe than spending a day with an unvaccinated person who's been isolating. Yeah, it, it was really about that piece of understanding the relative risk and that unvaccinated people certainly do increase the risk. But if you're vaccinated, unless you're medically fragile, the risk that you get it and that it seriously damages you is actually very low. And so unvaccinated people aren't as huge a risk as I was seeing people make it out on social media. But on the flip side, those of us who are vaccinated, we are still a risk to anyone who's medically fragile. Well, really anyone, but very small risk to to people who are vaccinated as well. We still can carry it. We still can transmit it. And so when we're making our decision about what's good and bad, we still need to be thinking about all of the things we can do, not just vaccination. Another piece of this that I think has made it difficult is that the political discussion in the U.S. has made vaccination a very political issue. And you see this from both sides, you know, and when Biden talked about the pandemic of the unvaccinated, in some ways he was saying like, look, it's the Trump supporters that are the problem here. And, you know, I'm not saying there's no reality to that. If you look at what Republican governors are doing with banning mask mandates, it's just kind of crazy to see those decisions being made. And, you know, more people are going to die and are dying because of it. But the, the Democrats have also really politicized the issue. And I don't think that's helping to get people vaccinated. One of the interesting things that I read very early on in the pandemic was about how public health professionals should manage communication. And they were talking about how important it is that the communication come from a public health professional rather than a politician. What was happening in New York in the early days and Andrew Cuomo's leading the press conferences. And it's like, that's not the right thing. Like that already starts to politicize the pandemic. What should be happening is that he should be talking about the non-health part of it. Like how are we going to be running transportation and those things? Yeah. Public health professionals should be the one and only thinking about the health part of it because that, they're not political. 
Yeah, and we are in North America, especially such politicized and polarized uh, times. I, I mean, one of the things about the pandemic, especially on social media, is the, that's that's hurt me is the lack of civility. And I think greatness comes from talking to people of different opinions, and that's how you learn. But it's people with different opinions, not really having a conversation to promote dialogue, but it's more like I'm going to bully you or embarrass you into my position or just no tact, lack of civility, mean. And that tone, I think, set us back. And it shows that we have a almost a pandemic around the polarization of people in our society. And the, I mean, the political piece was a big piece of that, but also just the stress of the pandemic. And I'm someone who likes to get into discussions on social media. I'm pretty opinionated, but I'm also interested in listening. And so I'll usually state mine as clearly as I can and then think about what other people are saying to me. And early on, we had discussion around gun control because of what happened in Eastern Canada and Trudeau coming out and saying, you know, we're going to ban all the AR-15s and assault rifles and so on. And someone posted something on social media that I disagreed with. And instead of being like, here's why I disagree, I was like, rah! (laughs) And just totally, total jerk face moment and look back on it. And I was like, that's not how I usually approach these things. Or at least I like to think that's not how I usually approach these things. And then recognizing like, oh yeah, I'm under a lot of stress right now. Pandemic's changed my life. It's increased the level of danger and risk in my life a lot for my family and especially my dad. And those are things that are making ways that are a lot less careful with other people. Yeah, that's a good point. Thank you for sharing it. Your family, you and your partner have also been blessed. Can you tell us what it was like bringing a baby into the world during the pandemic? Congratulations. Thank you. It was a bit interesting. I mean, from my point of view, the thing that was very strange was that I couldn't go to any medical appointments leading up to it because as a partner, I was just an extra risk to the medical provider, right? Yeah. So my wife would go and I couldn't, and she's a midwife, so I could ask her any questions I wanted and get very detailed answers. So it wasn't like on on information, but it was just strange that this whole progress of this, I was getting entirely through her. And then the birth was, I think, pretty straightforward. Everyone was wearing masks, but other than that, pretty normal. And then and the fathers are allowed, partners are allowed in for the birth. Yeah, yes. And that had been the case right from the start that uh, one support person was allowed for each birth. So that part I knew, fortunately, that uh, that would be the case. But yeah, when the after the birth, it's been thinking through like, okay, we're both vaccinated, but our child isn't. Being really young is relatively good protection against COVID. But, you know, when it's your own child, you don't want relatively good. You want as good as you can get. Yeah. And so we've been pretty careful about that. But it also means making decisions about, well, can he see grandparents? You know, how much time oh, can he spend with them? Those kinds of things. That is the toughest. I've been talking to people and that seems to be that intergenerational divide has just been some of the greatest heartache and heartbreak. How did you how did you remedy that? And, and then I know I just think about my mother seeing her grandchildren and they've been doing a lot of the online, but it's always great when they can get together in person outside. And sometimes we get together inside with masks. Yeah. Yeah. It was a long wait. We did a few visits with grandparents outside distanced masked. And then once everyone was fully vaccinated, then we said, okay, these are the people we're going to allow to be indoors with our child, Mm -hmm. uh, and we're limiting it to just them. 
but so now he's had a chance to see all his grandparents in person. They've all had a chance to hold him, which has been really nice. And we've had a little bit of support from them in more direct ways than they were able to provide before. So in that sense, the, the vaccinations have made a big difference for how much interaction we can have with family. I, I made a connection to that because last last fall, my sister and, and her partner, they had a, a little baby, Arthur, and I'd seen him on yeah. the computer, but I didn't see him in the flesh until we were all double vaxxed just in July, in July. And it, oh, I got to tell you, technology is a substitute, but it's not a perfect substitute for togetherness and to be in close proximity, worry-free. Absolutely. Yeah, there's something about holding a baby, holding another person that's so different from talking to them on a screen. We really appreciated once things got to the point where we felt it was safe enough to include grandparents in our bubble. We are very lucky to be talking with Yakov here today on the Pandemic Show. Stories of the Pandemic for the people of the pandemic. No one's alone on the pandemic show. Yakov, thank you for sharing with us the trials and tribulations you had supporting your father in long-term care and also opening up and telling us what it was like for your family to grow with a new addition, a baby. Now we're thinking about the future of the pandemic. There's been a lot of weather volatility and natural disasters during the pandemic. And as a as a father, this is probably something you're very concerned about, wanting to make sure we leave a healthy earth for the next generation and, and generations to come. What do you think about all the forest fires? We've got forest fires all over. We've got a horrible hurricane season last year in the United States. India has been devastated by some cyclones. We're seeing droughts. We're seeing weather just being really unpredictable. Do you have any thoughts on weather and climate change and the and the pandemic? Yeah, this summer's been crazy. You know, within three weeks, we had practically everywhere in the northern hemisphere hit by some kind of extreme weather event, whether it was tornadoes or forest fires or flooding or cyclones. And I think it's been a wake up call for a lot of people about how close climate change is and this idea that like, oh, climate change is going to happen later. You can't really think that anymore. Here in Canada, we had forest fires and a heat wave in British Columbia killed 600 people. You know, we're a very rich country. We've got all kinds of resources with which to protect our citizens. And we still have 600 dead people as a result of that. And so if you look at other places in the world, as they they hit these things, they're having much higher mortality rates. I'm not sure the pandemic is going to change very much, unfortunately. I, I think really the people who have the biggest leverage on this and are making the most change right now, crazy as it sounds, is the insurance companies, because they've recognized that they just can't afford to keep insuring people and they can't afford to keep insuring corporations in the ways that they used to. And because that hits corporations in their pocketbook, it makes a difference that policymakers have to pay attention to. You know, if you and I were having some trouble or we're looking ahead and, and we're very worried about the future and we write to our member of parliament, you know, maybe they pay attention or maybe like mine, they don't even reply. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, when when it's hurting business, unfortunately, that's the thing that our governments can't ignore. So the fact that that's happening now, I think, is is really changing a lot of minds amongst the politicians 
And the, the real question is over the next couple of years, if they're not as bad as this year, will we be able to continue some momentum for changing policy or will they just go back to heads in the sand until the next particularly bad year? I am hopeful that this global pandemic, this slowdown has given everybody an opportunity to to see the shortcomings in our communities and our societies. And hopefully the change that needs to happen will come from this. I think you made a good point that the people at the top need to embrace the idea that it's time for change as well. Season one of the pandemic, we talked to Mo Markham and she shared how social justice, the social justice movement was kind of cooled by the pandemic where people were forced to stay in their houses. But then we saw the Black, Black Lives Matter movement just go global. We're seeing now the Ferry Creek protest to protect old growth forests in BC. People are getting back on the streets for social justice. Is it the people on the streets that are going to make the change or is it the change of heart of the billionaires and the the mega corporation? It's going to be interesting to see. Yeah, I think you need to do what you can individually to make the change and every pushing helps. You know, my MP has not answered my emails. I'm still sending emails. I'm starting to write letters. Doing those things is important. And also just trying to figure out how you can make your own life more resilient to these problems is really important. But things change much faster when there's a policy push. You know, you need a lot of people on board in a social movement to change, to make big change, but you need a few words and a new law to make a big change. So we need to be doing both sides of it. You can't just leave one or hope that things will work out. Every drop fills a bucket. We're all in this together. There's a lot on the line. There's the children's future, generations from now future. Yakov, I can't thank you enough for joining us here today on the Pandemic Show. You're a ultimate Frisbee player. You're an elite athlete. Not only do you play ultimate Frisbee, I believe you also coach and referee. Yes. So the pandemic, how has it affected you? your sports life, your physical fitness. Yeah, pretty much total shutdown. March ultimate just stopped and it's only four or five weeks ago that we've been able to resume with some extra precautions, but yeah, total shutdown. And I think most people found it really difficult to try to stay fit to the pandemic. I was getting out and running and so on, but it just kind of wore me down. Now getting back out on the field, my fitness level is way, way lower than it used to be. I don't think elite athlete was ever an accurate term to apply to me, but thank you for that. But certainly, you know, my level of fitness now is, is far, far like a long time to come back. And, and I'm seeing that throughout the community of people who play competitively, that most people just weren't able to maintain fitness, that the pandemic was difficult to keep that focus. Now we're coming into the end of August. You're a high school math teacher. You're going to be getting back into the front line public education. And we're now hearing inklings that even with our great vaccination campaign, the Delta variant, dun, 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 the fourth wave. What are your thoughts on the fourth wave here in Ontario? And wherever you are around the world, you, you might be in a second wave, a third wave or a fourth wave. What do you think is going to the Delta variant fourth wave in Southern Ontario, what do you think we have to look forward to? I mean, I'm guessing, but based on what I'm seeing from other places, and our government's decision to put a large number of children in the same room for extended periods of time, I think we're gonna see massive increase in cases. If anyone is in social contact with someone who's medically fragile, I would say stay out of schools. If you're a teacher, make sure you're teaching online, not in person. I think 
you know, people are going to be possibly quite surprised at how bad things get and how quickly they move. Delta is just that much worse in terms of how quickly it infects people. And we know it passes among children. We know children infect other children and family members. And so it's going to be pretty dicey. Like people were really hopeful about the vaccines and they are certainly going to help and hopefully especially help our hospitals to be able to stay afloat through this. But I think case counts are going to just go way up. The politicians made a bet at the start of the school year that masking and distancing and cohorting was going to be enough. And they mostly won that bet, I'd say, through the second wave, through the time leading up to the second wave. As we started to get variants, they didn't win that bet. And if you look at the age breakdown of cases in Ontario, you can see uptick amongst younger people before it starts in any other age group, which means that the spread in schools was driving that third wave because of schools being open at that time. But they haven't changed the plan for this fall. It's not any better. There's, they've once again announced, oh, we're going to do better ventilation, but they're announcing it a few weeks before school starts to get it in place. I was surprised they didn't have a plan out last spring for yeah. this September. Yeah. And I mean, I understand that variants mean things are changing, but there's so much that they could have done. And one of the most make class sizes smaller. In Ontario, yeah. we have a huge number of supply teachers We've got lots of empty community centers that have rooms that are suitable for use and other countries have organized to make their classes smaller, limit the risk. We easily could have done that. The government has, the provincial government has a whole pile of funding from the federal government that they haven't used that's earmarked specifically for pandemic. So it was doable, but they've decided not to. And I think we're going to really see the problems that come out of that over the next few weeks. Good point. I remember reading about European countries that were reducing the class sizes and spreading the children out. That's a winning formula. When last summer at this time, I thought, okay, are we going to see children in community centers? Are we going to see children in churches? Are we going to see children in the public baseball diamonds, the hockey arena? Are we going to are we going to take that approach and really get on top of this? And and I didn't see that happening here. That was interesting. So hopefully we're going to get through this. One day we'll, we, hopefully one day we will be looking at the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic in the rear view mirror. Yakov, what do you hope the world looks like? Well, I, I mostly are, I'm hoping that big changes get made around climate. I think COVID is really scary because it's here right now, but if, you start to read a little bit about climate. It's going to be a much, much worse problem. Well, in many ways, it already is. We probably had more deaths worldwide last year from climate change than from COVID. The estimates are about 5 million, depending on who you ask or and exactly what you count. But we had 4 million, 4.3 million COVID deaths over the pandemic. It is very scary where it's going. I think the other thing that people don't really understand about climate change is that when we stop emissions, you know, if we were to do total shutdown of our carbon dioxide emissions and our methane emissions right now, we don't shut down climate change right now because the carbon dioxide and methane that we've already put in the atmosphere is there and it's like a blanket and it takes about a hundred years for the carbon dioxide, shorter period, I think about 30 years for the methane to come out of the atmosphere. And as long as it's there, we're continuing to warm. We're still under that blanket. So the decisions we're making now aren't just committing us for the next couple of years. They're committing us for 100 years in the case of carbon dioxide and, and decades in the case of methane. So we need to not just look at like, is the situation now so bad that we can't deal with it anymore and we have to shut down? It's like, okay, it's this bad now. 
how bad is it going to get before that carbon comes out of the atmosphere? And we need to make those long-term decisions. And a four-year election cycle is not ideal for long-term decision-making. Good point. Thank you so much for joining us here today on The Pandemic Show. No one's alone on The Pandemic Show. Thanks a lot for having me. Thanks for listening to The Pandemic Show. We're all in this together, and we're glad you're here together with us. Physically distance with us at pandemishow.com. Be a part of our community by subscribing to and sharing The Pandemic Show. Thanks for taking a minute to email an episode, share a link, or promote us on social media. Pandemic Show is on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and Reddit. Stories from the pandemic for the people of the pandemic. Do you have an interesting pandemic story and want to share? Email us at pandemishow at gmail.com. Thanks to all our guests. Thanks to Giant Value for singing us in and letting us know everything is going to be all right. No one is alone at the Pandemic Show.